Thanks for pressing play. The opening paragraph of the Navy SEAL ethos reads, In times of war or uncertainty, there is a special breed of warrior ready to answer our nation's call. A common man with uncommon desire to succeed. Forged by adversity, he stands alongside America's finest special operations forces to serve his country, the American people, and protect their way of life. I am this man. And this is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And if you're new, you should know that our listeners have made us a chart-topping, award-winning dialogue podcast where we feature real dialogues, conversations about business and about life. And it doesn't get any realer than this. Today, legendary combat veteran Navy SEAL Brent Gleason is here. He's got a red-hot, (laughs) rockin'-hot new book out called Embrace the Suck. He served our country with courage as member of SEAL Team 5. He uh, served in multiple tours of duty, including in Iraq and Africa and other theaters of war. Today, Brent is a successful entrepreneur, author, and speaker, and his new book is uh, catching everybody's attention. Embrace the Suck, the Navy Seal Way to an Extraordinary Life. And man, do we ever get into it. This is an episode where you're probably going to want to take some notes. You may want to listen a couple times. We get into why Brent thinks we need to lean into pain, how to deal with failure and rise up to any challenge no matter what. And um, you might be surprised to hear about what Brent thinks about the similarities between being a SEAL and being an entrepreneur and a business leader. And you may even be surprised to hear that Navy SEALs uh, can sometimes want to shy away from tough conversations themselves. This is a legendary dialogue with a true American hero. My friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. That's splunk.com slash D to E. And my friends at Oracle NetSuite are the leading cloud ERP system, and they are the platform you want for your business. Check out netsuite.com slash different today and set up your free product tour. And if you're an entrepreneur or you love marketing, why not check out Lockhead on Marketing wherever you get legendary oddcasts. Now, hey-ho, let's go. So how are you, Brent? I'm doing well. How are you, brother? (laughs) I'm great. I'm glad to see you. Uh, and I know it might sound corny, but you'll forgive me. I must say thank you so much for your service. Thank you. Appreciate that. You gentlemen and, and ladies who serve our country are an ongoing source of inspiration to me. Thank you very much. Now, you look like you could bench press a truck. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe back in my younger days, my friend. <laughs> uh, how tall are you? Uh, six one. Yeah. And what do you weigh? Uh, usually around or is that too personal? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> depends. In the early days of COVID, I think I went from two ten to about two twenty. <laughs> Maybe not all muscle. <laughs> well, uh, even if you put on a little bit with uh, COVID, you sure look lo- like you could uh, go back into service right now. <laughs> Thank you. I try to. I, I try to stay fit, and obviously, wellness activities I found are good ways uh, to uh, manage stress and anxiety. So <laughs> it's always good to try to stay disciplined. So uh, you've been feeling some stress and anxiety lately. Even that happens for Navy SEALs, big, big, tough guys like you. Maybe initially in the moment, but uh, we tend to bounce back rather quickly. Uh, obviously, owning a business that centers predominantly around two main revenue revenue streams of uh, speaking at live events and uh, doing a lot of consultative work within leadership and organizational development. All of which used to be predominantly done uh, on site with clients or at off off site events. Um, so, uh, you know, when COVID hit, uh, a lot of those revenue streams went from, uh, great 2020 projections down to zeros temporarily. <laughs> so we had to do some of our own pivoting on the battlefield as usual. <laughs> and so, uh, what's pivoting in business like compared to pivoting on the ba- battlefield? Uh, it's not that different. Uh, you don't have to do it quite as fast sometimes because nobody's trying to kill you. But, um, yeah, I think we've seen, uh, you know, within our team and also a lot of our client organizations, um, you know, the companies that are really, uh, 
not just surviving right now, but actually starting to thrive and that will come out of this a lot stronger than they were before, uh, have used some of the extra time and resources to recapitalize their business, to uh, to innovate, to launch digital transformation initiatives that normally would take two years and they did it in a month. <laughs> so a lot, of, a lot of adversity can uh, create new opportunity, uh, both for individuals and for, for teams and organizations. You know, it's interesting you bring up digital transformation. I think one of the uh, big undertold stories of 2020 is the legendary job that IT professionals in the technology industry have done. Yeah. I mean, you think about how many tens of millions of people ne- needed to get moved offsite to, to virtual work. You know, uh, we've had Eric Yuan, the founder of Zoom on a couple times. I mean, right. the job they've done, <laughs> you think about security, the security risks we've had by, by this digital transformation and, and, and working from home and all those things. I think it's a miracle the internet itself hasn't blown up and then it's a miracle that we haven't had 20 million security breaches all day, every day. It's incredible. Uh, it really is. I would say miracle as well. And it's been pretty fascinating to see uh, how organizations have adopted new ways of, of communicating. We've been doing a lot of work with our clients around leading and managing remote teams and best practices and SOPs when it comes to utilizations of platforms like Zoom or this platform or uh, or other similar ones. Uh, and it's, uh, it's interesting to see how rapid the adoption uh, has happened due to uh, necessity as opposed to desire. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm curious to s- dig into this thread with you. Um, Early in the pandemic, we had both former Navy SEAL Chris Fussell, who you know, and uh, uh, General Stan McChrystal on. And one of the things I found interesting in their work, if you might remember, they they wrote some stuff, I think, for either the Wall Street Journal or New York Times. And they were got sort of very forward into this crisis in trying to share leadership lessons from the battlefield and communication strategies and so forth yeah. and so on very early on in this pandemic. And so I'm curious about sort of what your perspective is, is given where we are now in the pandemic, what leaders should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's interesting you mentioned them because uh, their, their book, Team of Teams, uh, and, and Chris's follow-on book were uh, a big source of inspiration for me in my first book, Taking Point. Uh, both books have some similar philosophies around uh, the modern 21st century business organization and, and uh, operating and leading in you know, volatile, uncertain, complex environments. And uh, now, you know, with the with the fast paced world of modern business uh, being complex enough, and then layering in the new complexities of this current reality with the global pandemic and civil, social, and political unrest and economic uncertainty, both for organizations and for obviously the individuals within those organizations, it's caused an even heightened level of leadership uh, complexity and challenge. Uh, because, you know, as leaders, we're supposed to, uh, you know, show empathy and be innately in tune with, you know, what motivates each individual on our team and within our direct reports and our peers. Uh, and now with everybody working predominantly in, uh, in a remote setting, everybody has a different environment uh, that they're in now, too, as well. In addition to, you know, s- some people thrive in remote settings and others feel isolation and uncertainty and uh, because of, um, you know, greater levels of digital silos now creating uh, communication challenges and obviously organizations going through a lot of change. I mean, that's basically in a lot of what Team of Teams was about. And then my book, Taking Point, is about leading through change. This was before the pandemic. <laughs> and now we're all leading through an even greater level of, uh, of change uh, on this new business battlefield uh, as it relates to how organizations are uh, you know, recapitalizing the business or rethinking the revenue streams or uh, rethinking their workforce needs, their workplace needs, uh, just how they operate in general and how they interact both with their internal teams and their clients and customers. Uh, it's a, it, it's a even more fast paced world of, of chaos <laughs> in a great way. But again, uh, I think the leaders who are uh, doing it right have taken stock of their current environment. Uh, they didn't wait too long to develop new plans and new strategies uh, they engaged all or the majority of their teams in those decisions uh, to create buy-in. And then they've been executing, uh, or as I would say, violently executing to uh, transform the business or just transform the way, way they operate in general. And again, like we saw in you know 2008 and beyond during that recession, the organizations that uh, found ways to innovate and be creative uh, in what the organization was going to look like you know, two, three, five years beyond the recession... 
Many of them gained significant market share. Uh, many of them even, for lack of a better phrase, crushed their competition <laughs> and you know, came out stronger uh, and more adaptive uh, and more matrixed uh, than they were prior to that uh, situation. And I think we're going to see the same thing uh, here. And one phrase that I that I'm getting annoyed with is, well, when this is all over, there is no when this is all over. <laughs> There'll be ripple effects for this for a long time. The other one I can't stand is uh, going back when we go back. Yeah, There's yeah. no going back. <laughs> no, we're here. We're here. We'll we're continue just, to evolve. February was February, man. It's long over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, the interesting thing about this thread is I think for virtually all of us, this has been a, a stressful time at one point or another. And it's hard to maintain sort of focus and clarity and a positive mindset. And what struck me recently, we had on a legendary pastor, Pastor Dave Ferguson, a while back. And, you know, he's in this world of all these legendary Christian leaders in our country. And he sent this thing to a group of us. And um, it was about pastor kind of mental health yeah. and how pastors have been suffering over the last nine months as they, if you will, care for their flocks. And I sort of look at that and I think, you know, you don't think very much about pastor <laughs> mental health. You know, you expect that these incredible <laughs> spiritual people are connected with God and they're nice and grounded and they got it all figured out and all that shit. Right. And so when you read like, holy cow, you know, pastor mental health is an issue. The reality is whether it's a military leader or a business leader or just, just in our own households and our own lives, this has been a jarring experience for many of us, including pastors. And so, you know, what does that make you think about this current environment, particularly given that it's going to be tough for an ongoing period of time? Well, interestingly, I, I and I know we might talk about this in a bit, but uh, I have a new book coming out in December, which is, uh, it's titled Embrace the Suck, the Navy Seal Way <laughs> to such a legendary title. <laughs> Well, Did anybody it, uh, say to you, hey, Brent, you know, people want feel good shit. They want seven steps to happy, happy, happy and uh, embrace the suck might. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, and, and, and it, it's a good segue into talking about mental health and, and, and how people can evolve through through adversity and embracing suffering and uncertainty. But obviously, going into that project, I didn't realize 2020 was going to suck as bad as it has. Um, so selfishly, I think the timing of the way to go on the timing. December <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 22nd, the election is done. Half the country is pissed off. Everybody's had a shitty year. But the term "embrace the suck" originally born in the Marine Corps and adopted throughout the world of special operations, especially in arguably some of the most challenging training and selection programs uh, in the military. And, you know, essentially the phrase is simple it, it, as opposed to, and I started doing some, you know, some research in the self-help genre, which I'd never really dabbled in or, or read much. Uh, and I, arguably one of the largest, uh, most popular genres out there showing that people crave uh, this type of stuff. And everybody's different. You know, there, there is a lot of fluff out there, in my opinion. Um, that's, you know, like you said, like happy self-talk bullshit that's, you know, um, that, that also doesn't really give you any actionable tools, uh, to use. Um, and, and some of them out, you know, it might be good reads that they're obviously very popular, but I don't really connect with that type of, of narrative. Um, so I wanted to create something a little more counterintuitive, uh, that is a little bit more in your face, a little bit more gritty that really does dive into the ability to be intentional in how we expand our comfort zone you know, how we lean into the inevitable pain and suffering that we uh, face uh, throughout our lives as humans, um, how to reassess our values, how to better align our, our behavior and our mindset with uh, the goals we want to achieve and giving to causes greater than ourselves. And, you know, within that book, when it comes to, you know, mental health and the, the challenges that many of us have faced, you know, all of us included uh, throughout the year with, you know, financial uncertainty, the uncertainty in, a, in the marketplace, depending on, regardless of industry, I've seen this impact all of our clients, for example, uh, including our business. And uh, that causes individuals to be uncertain. It causes strain in your personal life and your relationships. And I don't know what the divorce rate is going to be after 2020, but I'm sure it's been impacted in a way. And I've seen Interesting. I can't data. wait to see what the um, <laughs> divorce rate is and what the baby rate is. Like, are we going to have a baby boom because everybody stayed home and canoodled? Let me tell you an interesting story. I'm glad you brought that up. Guess who's having a new baby on January 7th? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll tell you. I'll so tell you, you got right to it. You thought, well, if we're going to uh, quarantine, let's get on it. 
well, I was like many, I was traveling, you know, every other week, sometimes during our, you know, hottest times of, of, of our, uh, you know, work, uh, yeah, every single week. And so, you know, and part of our strategic plan with the business and growth and our, our talent acquisition needs was to get me off the road more and, you know, deploy the team more to our client sites and different events. And gosh, who knew all it took was a little global pandemic to get dad home and boom, all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, within like two weeks, uh, my <laughs> wife walked up to me with a pregnancy test. I was like, wonderful. <laughs> if this year wasn't going to be Perfect. crazy enough. <laughs> That's what we need, a baby during a pandemic while our whole business is being turned upside down and every one of our clients' businesses being turned upside down. Sounds like an excellent plan. Oh, yeah. And then I saw some, <laughs> some data on the divorce rate. I saw that the, of the already high divorce rate, um, the data shows over the past nine months that the highest divorce rate within that, uh, within that data set is uh, marriages uh, six months or less. <laughs> so basically people who got married right at the beginning or right after the pandemic began. <laughs> Huh. And interesting. Did it, did you notice any data about sort of more longer term marriages? Uh, I haven't seen that, but, um, but, but uh, I can almost guarantee you that, um, this year will be the catalyst to even long term marriages that were on the fringe. I think one of two things will happen. It'll either, <laughs> it'll renew their spirit or it'll, uh, crush it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in our case, I think it's absolutely brought us closer. There's no question about it. Um, yeah. so, and I hope that's the case for a lot of marriages. I do know for, for some, particularly couples who are now both working from home, or even if they're not both working from home all the time, they're around each other a lot more. Um, I have a good friend who uh, her and her husband have a great marriage, but you know they weren't around each other very much. And right. now they're on top of each other. Oh, and by the way, the kids are homeschooled, Zooming. And, and so... Um, you know, in some cases, I think marriages can get closer together like it has in ours. But in, in marriages where you got more moving parts and shit, I don't know. Yeah, similar to you. For us, it's, it's been a blessing. You know, I, I needed to be home more. Uh, we've got three children and one on the way. And my plan was to never be on the road all the time anyway. It's just it's not scalable. But uh, it's been great. And yes, it's chaotic at times. It's not perfect. It's messy. Uh, we do have an office. Our, our, our corporate headquarters is literally two minutes down the hill from my house. So I do have a, a refuge <laughs> to escape to, especially when it comes to doing client events virtually and things like that. You know, there's a way to prevent children. Did, <laughs> did, did anyone explain that to you guys? Yeah, I don't know about that. I've, I haven't heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> so is, is, is four the new two? Is that what's going on? I guess so. <laughs> Once you have three, you're already in zone defense and it's already chaos. So. Uh, yeah, well, maybe that it's funny that you mentioned this uh, earlier, you know, right in the very early part of your book, you've got this whole concept you introduce, of course, of leaning into the pain. And I love the headline pain don't hurt. So is a fourth child during a pandemic leaning into the pain? <laughs> I would imagine that it will be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe let's talk about that. You know, I, I know nobody likes pain. Um, well, do you know Akshay Nanavati? He seems to like pain. <laughs> He's the crazy I, marine. Yeah, I, would, I would say I would agree. I would I would agree that there are people out there who do enjoy pain. <laughs> yeah, and it's and interesting. Um, it. I'm a huge boxing and martial arts fan, and, and there's certain fighters that don't seem to fight very well until they really get smacked. <laughs> you know? I, do you know who yeah. Donald Cerrone is? Donald Cowboy yeah. Cerrone. Yeah. He's that kind of a fighter where somebody's got to really right. smack him in the face before he's in the before fight. Before he locks on, yeah. <laughs> but I think in general, most of us think about steering away from the pain. And so, um, you know, all kidding aside, what does it really mean to lean into the pain? Well, obviously, there's there's different uh, types of pain and suffering. There's there's psychological, you know, and emotional pain and suffering. There's physical pain and suffering. And I think that, you know, when you look at it from cultural perspectives, um, here in the West, we tend to shy away from any type of pain, any type of suffering. We, we run away from it. We ignore it. We self-medicate it. Um, whereas uh, many Eastern cultures uh, see it as a, uh, not just inevitable, but a critical part of the man meandering path towards uh, enlightenment. Uh, and then kind of like I focus on in the book, there's uh, intentional uh, pain and suffering. There's purposeful suffering that we must engage in to achieve loftier goals, to give to causes greater than ourselves, to, to serve others, uh, to, um, develop, uh, as individuals. Uh, when we, when we are intentional in expanding the boundaries of our comfort zone, we will 
live a more fulfilling, happier, purpose-driven life because we will achieve more of the goals we set. Whatever those goals might be and whatever your definition of self-fulfillment and happiness is, uh, if you think about it, like I say in the book, when have you ever achieved anything meaningful in your life that did not have attached to it some level of pain, suffering, or adversity? You know, the answer is nothing. You know, when have you ever done something that gave you true fulfillment that was trapped within the confines of your comfort zone? Nothing. You know, it's only when we peek beyond the boundaries of the comfort zone, see what's out there. Maybe it gives us a little fear or trepidation. Then we go do it anyway. And that expands that area, expands your comfort zone. And then you move the goalposts and you do it again and you make it a ritual, part of your existence and part of your mindset, as opposed to, you know, this time of year, people are like, well, I'm going to have some New Year's resolutions or 2020 was, was crappy, but come January, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to attack next year. It's not, <laughs> it's not like a line that says, okay, this year's over and 2021 is coming. Uh, it, it's a lifestyle. Uh, and that's really what the book is trying to uh, convey to people and have certain tools that, you know, that they could use is, um, you know, really thinking about how my values drive me towards achieving the goals that I want, or do they deter me uh, from those goals? You know, do I engage in proper? Yeah. We seem to live at a time where it's all about comfort and it's all about convenience. And of course, some of these things have been accelerated because of the pandemic, right? Whether it's having Instacart bring you your groceries or DoorDash bring you a meal or, 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 of course, Amazon, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so in some ways, the pandemic uh, maybe is accelerating some of these um, comforts, if you will. <laughs> excuse me, comforts, if you will, that are making us lazier and lazier. You know, sometimes I wonder if the problem with humanity is, um, you know, we don't know where our food comes from, right? Like we're just <laughs> shit is so easy on so many dimensions and the technology and the delivery. And, you know, I guess long way of saying we could all turn into couch potatoes very quickly here and convince ourselves that success equals comfort. Right. And, you know, when it comes to, uh, let's take, I like the topic of fitness, for example, because it's, it's easily measurable. And I, I've seen, you know, some of my, you know, friends and colleagues are uh, over this past year, they've taken advantage of a renewed schedule or a uh, life situation and they're in the best shape of their entire lives. And then I've seen the opposite happen too, where people are like, well, can't go anywhere, can't do anything. So I guess I'll just, like you said, sit on the couch and watch TV and uh, eat shitty food. Don't forget, drink a ton of alcohol. <laughs> well, that's kind of a given, my friend. But <laughs> you can do both. But it, um, but, but yeah, I, I may mean, think that you know our, our current culture. Uh, then, if you think about you know our children and the whole everybody gets a trophy culture and um, and it's all got to be inclusive and um, all these types of things where we're literally crippling you know our younger generations. The other one that drives me crazy is everybody gets the same amount of time on the field, <laughs> right? So the shitty kids aren't on the bench anymore. The good kids are benched while the shitty kids are losing the game. <laughs> they, they do that now. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, we got to take care of their mental health and make sure they feel included at all times and make sure they know yeah, they don't well, have maybe to they should get better at <laughs> Maybe they should get better at baseball or soccer or football or wrestling or ballet or whatever the thing is instead of getting equal time, even though they suck. Yeah. Put in the time, <laughs> be oh. disciplined. <laughs> I wrote, I wrote a funny story in the book about my. I, I get it. He's four, but um, you know, he played. He was playing soccer, and you know what four-year-old soccer was like. But you know, they were. <laughs> yeah, there's one story where he was. You know, and let's just say, you know, I, I get it. He's four. I don't want to sound like like a jerk, but uh, you know, his level of discipline and personal accountability on and off the field could have been a lot better. And so, when he was <laughs> on the field, there was one time during halftime that you know, the parents bring where we lived in his ridiculous snacks there was like a whole box of fried chicken fingers and so Ryder was on the field of battle in the middle of the game with a chicken finger <laughs> eating while he was supposed to be playing and supporting his team and this was the last <laughs> game of the season and yeah they do a trophy ceremony and coach is like all right I'll give you guys a hint you know um this next trophy who does it go to uh he likes to meander the field eating chicken fingers during the game all these hands shot up they're like it was Ryder it was Ryder and so he got his trophy and he was so just, he was exuberant. He was so thrilled that he got his first trophy ever the whole way home. He was like, can you believe it? Can you believe it? So as soon as we got home, I ripped that trophy out of his hand. And I said, we do not support mediocrity in this house. 
And of course, I'm joking. I uh, helped him find a prominent place for it in his bedroom <laughs> and c- congratulated him once again. <laughs> oh, on, on the trophy for the best chicken finger eating. Exactly. <laughs> now, y- you super ding dong Navy SEAL guys are big on discipline. And one of the things I appreciated in your book is this whole um, chapter on taming the tiger. And I, I love this quote. I can resist anything except temptation. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think when a lot of us hear you guys who inspire us and we appreciate so much and we, we, you know, I I love reading all your stuff, right? And you say, okay, well, that's all real great. And man, I feel like a beer, right? And (laughs) And so that's a very real thing that we all face. And ultimately, there are these choices, these little forks in the road, and some of them are giant and some of them are just little, am I going to have a beer or am I going to go for a jog or whatever the case may be? And so you dedicate a, you know, a, a chunk of your book to this notion of taming the tiger. And so can, can you kind of open this up for me, Brent? Well, yeah, it really, it really comes down to uh, limiting our choices. Uh, we are uh, inevitably tempted humans. Uh, there's especially now in this, you know, the age we live in where it's not just about being lured down a dark path to do bad things all the time, but just being distracted by competing priorities, distracted by other opportunities that I'm putting huge air quotes around, whether that be in your professional life or your personal life, things that deter you from the goals you actually want to achieve or the relationships you should be mending or focusing on. And um, so really, you know, I start that chapter off with kind of a fun sort of parable about, you know, temptation tiger and you know what he's all all about but um really it does come down to i like the the philosophy of just simply limiting your choices you know for example when i you know prior to joining the navy i was working in finance in downtown dallas uh and basically one of my buddies from southern methodist university who he had you know a childhood vision and dream of becoming a seal and this was pre-9-11 just pre-9-11 so a little bit different notion during peacetime still a call to serve and, and very noble but not the same as, you know, special operators or these young guys I mentor go in and now that they know they're going to go downrange uh, and go to war. And uh, we started training together and uh, still I had no real uh, intention of joining the military. But over that time, I uh, started reading about the history of the Naval Special Warfare community, and the, the mindset, the grit and the resilience and the dedication and focus that these operators have have to have just to successfully navigate the training pipeline, you know, which has arguably an 85 to 90% failure rate of, of capable candidates that begin. Yeah. So it's not like you're people not just trying accepted it. into the, yeah, it's not just anybody. And then, you know, 90% failure rate, it's highly capable candidates who are accepted to the program and then still do not make it. And so going back to temptation and discipline and focus, uh, for me and for many, and, and for, uh, these young guys that I mentor now, gosh, I mean, they are so impressive. Uh, they take focus and dedication to <laughs> to the next level where, you know, when I did finally make that decision to, you know, leave what was a relatively lucrative job in finance and a nice apartment in downtown Dallas to uh, enlist in the Navy, I had been training, yes, but not with the purposeful intent of joining. But then that training uh, quickly transitioned. Uh, you know, we moved to Crested Butte, Colorado. Uh, and basically, I had to transform my entire lifestyle and mindset to limit those choices uh, and remove every possible element of temptation from my life that would stand in the way of those goals. So my social life, my dietary habits, workout regimen, even going as far as removing people from my life that I knew would stand in the way of achieving that goal. And, and obviously not people I deeply cared about, but you know, kind of the haters or the other people, the naysayers or the people who would try to distract me. You know, like kind of like you said, it would be like people being like, "I know you're training uh, tomorrow, but uh, how about we go out tonight and hit the bars?" <laughs> I didn't need those people in my life. <laughs> I wanted to go to the bars, but I literally had to. You know, I knew that if I wanted to achieve that goal, all that stuff had to go. So you were creating an environment, a support environment that supported you in your your objective. Or said simply, if you want to focus on your health and conditioning and so forth, then a fridge full of bad food and too much alcohol and all that stuff is a bad idea. So a fridge full of good food and not a lot of alcohol is a good idea. You got to set yourself up to win. Set yourself up for success by being uh, purposeful in, like you said, the environment that you create and cut everything else out of it. So you're you're not even... 
you're you're lessening the opportunity to be even distracted or tempted by things that do not align with the actions necessary to achieve that desired outcome. And yet so many of us fail to do that, right? This, this notion <laughs> of creating the right environment is a fascinating one. I'm, and I think it's one uh, um, a lot of us, the pandemic has made us think about, like, what is our environment like? What, what's our home like? As our home becomes our home, our school, our place of work, our gym, yeah. uh, our place of recreation, you know, sh- shelter in place. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> it's, so now we think, I think a lot of us are thinking about our environment in a, um, maybe in, in a unique way or in a different way. Oh, absolutely. And again, the ones that are, you know, the folks that are uh, beginning to thrive in this, this, this new environment have done just that. I've, I've, we've done it uh, here at our house and I've seen other people where they've, they've spent time redoing their gym or they've, in, you know, taken other areas of their budget where, gosh, I mean, my wife and I sat down and looked at our budget. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe all the shit we waste money on. Like we could really channel these funds and do much more productive things or, you know, God forbid, save money, especially with, you know, the uncertainty of, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and you're the owner of the business, it's exciting. But at the same time, uh, it's on you uh, to, you know, save those jobs and to keep payroll going and to support your own family as well as the other families that you employ. So, uh, you know, looking at the things we waste money on, looking at the things we waste time on and energy on, you know, a lot of the, 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 the focus of resilient people and resilient teams, one of the core tenants is, you know, maintaining focus on elements that are within your control. You know, we always spend so much time, energy and emotion on things that are wildly out of our control. Not that you should ignore those things, but definitely take stock of that situation. Look at what's in your control, what is not deprioritize those elements or put them off to the side, you know, maintain your situational awareness but focus on what's, what's in your control and sphere of influence, things you can have an impact on. Uh, and, and even research shows that people who are uh, very disciplined in that regard, just that one core tenet of resilience, you know, achieve more of the goals they set. Uh, they, they're more fulfilled they're more, uh, because they're only focusing. And, and the SEAL teams, everybody has a story called Stay in Your Three-Foot World. It came from a rock climbing trip. He and one of his um, Tier 1 uh, Special Operations Unit was on and um, it really is about focusing on what is in my immediate sphere of influence and control. And don't worry about anything else right now. Develop a plan that focuses on those elements, <laughs> not the other elements. There's also an element that comes through in your work of a developing a profound relationship with the reality or the truth or the way it is. In other words, you can have a great plan. You can want it to be a certain way. You could be moving in a certain direction and then bam, the shit hits the fan. And some people have a very hard time sort of relating to the fact that whatever they thought that was going to be is not that. (laughs) That happened very quickly. There's a new reality that is staring them in the face. And it's hard to even accept the fact that there's that new reality, particularly if it's in a time of crisis. And so how do you develop that sort of deep relationship with the way it is as opposed to the way you might like it to be? I think it's, I think it's really a, a practice that you have to get into. You know, one of my favorite quotes that I believe applies to the literal battlefield and the battlefield of business and life is, uh, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. <laughs> and I'll tell you from my, my experiences downrange, that is 100% true. Literally, as soon as your boots hit that battlefield, the shit hits the fan and everything goes to your contingency plans or some variation of plan A, B, and C. And so it goes back to the notion, too, of, of preparedness and the mindset that things inevitably will change is far more important than planning. And if you are engaging in very specific you know, strategic planning initiatives, whether it's a, you know, a simple goal in your personal life or something more complex in your career, uh, the importance of understanding what resources you have at your disposal uh, what needs to be acquired to achieve that goal? You know, what are the threats and blockages that stand in your way and thinking about those things? Uh, as simple, going back to, you know, fitness goals, it's so easy to equate this. Of, well, I'm going to run my first marathon. Okay. Well, you know, what are the threats and blockages and distractions and temptations that stand in the way of me achieving that specific goal? Did I make that goal specific? Did I make it time bound? Did I make it realistic? Is it measurable? And, um, you know, when we, when we don't engage in that type of thought process, uh, we tend to be hit harder, uh, when the inevitable obstacles, uh, we will face come down the path. I learned that, uh, many times on the literal battlefield, I learned it a lot <laughs> delving into the 
crazy world of entrepreneurship after getting out of the SEAL teams. I guess I like risk and uh, the recklessness because you know, what what entrepreneurial endeavors have about the same, if not higher failure rate than SEAL training. (laughs) (laughs) With one big difference though, you're alive when your business craters. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't feel that way sometimes. No, it uh, doesn't. My first business failed and I've been involved with a whole bunch of failures and they never get easy and they always suck. (laughs) Well, and and I, to be totally honest, I, I, even though, I had experienced, uh, you know, the chaos of the battlefield and having to rapidly adapt your mission plan and your tactics and strategies, literally in the midst of gunfights. Uh, but then, when when I became an entrepreneur, I seemed to have, you know, forgot all of that or, or left some of that behind. Because when you know, my first business was a, a home finding search engine. Uh, I started that right before 08. <laughs> that was the genius of the plan. <laughs> Excellent yeah, timing there, Brent. It didn't implode. We were well capitalized and we'd raised money. It didn't implode overnight, but gosh, I mean, it was, these were challenges that I had never faced. And I think oftentimes when we're just like a, you know, the bud student going through the early stages of SEAL training, it doesn't matter how well prepared you are, how much you've trained, you will be put in crucibles and situations uh, with emotional and physical pain that you've never experienced. You couldn't replicate in a different environment, regardless of how hard you train. And the students that are uh, able to uh, maintain their vision, you know, their passion and focus on the ultimate goal uh, and, and, and in a healthy way, compartmentalize some of those challenges and put them off to the side um, are the, the students that can thrive in those types of environments. Just like the entrepreneur whose business is getting hammered by external factors, internal factors, leadership challenges they've never faced with before. Um, you know, again, it goes back to uh, you know, taking stock of that reality. Uh, developing a plan of action, uh, having trusted mentors and advisors that you can lean on. You know, all these things, I think, are, are beneficial for us to be able to uh, continue to actively develop and build resilience and mental fortitude. Um, and, and the more you practice the fine art uh, of those um, activities, uh, you will be able to bounce back faster next time and be able to think more critically on the battlefield next time you're under an ambush, <laughs> so to speak. Now, I'm, I'm continuously fascinated, Brent, with why some people melt like snow in July and why others are rocks who produce results in the face of incredible, incredible circumstances. I'm always fa- I've always been fascinated by that. And having lived through it many times in business, it's interesting to see some of the people that you don't think would actually crater crater years ago. I was, um, I was the chief marketing officer of a publicly traded software company and we got investigated by the securities and exchange commission and for stock option backdating and illegal counting procedures and all this stuff. And like, <laughs> sounds fun. So, Oh fuck. It's really, <laughs> it's really fun. The day the feds show up to take your laptop from you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really fun day. Right. And all the interviews and all of that. And it was so, that was, I, I use it as an example, but it was fascinating. You know, we had some people who were thought to be sort of icons in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. who just cratered in that moment. And then we had others who stood up, you know, like Gior, your own, who became our chairman at the time. Um, he, he's now the chairman of, of Tel Aviv University, an incredible man uh, with a very serious military background. Mm-hmm. And he stood up and he took the chairman job. He was on the board. And not only did he not quit, he said, yeah, I'll be chairman and I'll deal with the SEC <laughs> and I'll deal with the regulators and the government and the accountants and the lawyers and bring them on. Right. And he he was this incredible leader who stood up. And so I'm always fascinated by that. And I'm curious what insights you, you have that, uh, that could sort of show us how you be that person who stands up like Giora, as opposed to many of the others who melted. Well, it's, it is a fascinating uh, thing to think about, you know, resilience and think about, you know, who has more uh, resilience in their bank account than others. And can you develop it? Can you not develop it? You know, the theories of do you either, do you either have more grit and mental fortitude, uh, than others who don't, or is it something that can be practiced? Uh, so that was a fun part of the journey in, in writing the book. And interestingly, to, to go back to, um, the fascinating social experiment that is SEAL training is, let's say for simple math, you start with a class of 200 highly capable candidates. Now, amongst that group of students, you'll see 
you know, big ripped tattoo covered guys that look like they, you know, eat glass and breathe fire. And like you said, bench press 500 pounds easily while drinking a beer. Uh, and then others look like, you know, an accountant <laughs> it's, and you could, it's very easy to go down the line and be like, that guy will make it, that guy won't make it, that guy will make it. And you could never handpick uh, the 20 or 30 students that graduate from that class of 200. And most of the time, if you attempted that experiment, you would be, you would be wrong. And going back to your point, it really is interesting to see when, when put in adverse situations, who steps up to the plate and, and who does not. And sometimes those people that you think would, would grab the torch and forge ahead, you know, while leading the team forward, uh, those are the people that crumble first under the pressure. I mean, you've got people who look like the scariest beast you've ever met. And two minutes into hell week, they're ringing the bell, quitting, throwing in the towel. Uh, whereas other people who are quiet, mild mannered, uh, kind of middle of the pack folks, uh, crush the training with a smile on their face. And it really was fascinating to, to see that evolution of, you know, the normal people, uh, who, who forge ahead, uh, to become some of the, you know, most deadly warriors, uh, the modern world has ever seen. And most of them you will see are relatively mild mannered people, uh, high levels of emotional intelligence, uh, great communicators, very collaborative, uh, not so much the macho, uh, crazy looking folks you might see in the movies. It's quite the opposite sometimes. And we've actually invested, uh, significant resources, uh, in market research, for lack of a better phrase, to identify the emotional, cognitive, uh, physical attributes of students more likely to uh, graduate that pipeline. Think about it as a, a sales funnel. Uh, we need to close more deals, i.e. graduate more seals. We need the Glen Gary seals. Well, yeah, <laughs> we need that. We got to be closing. Uh, and we're still closing the same amount of uh, deals every class. So we try to, we try to be intentional in putting better candidates in the top of that funnel, uh, through, you know, it's been of a transition for us to be through, uh, and, and a cultural shift and being more overt and uh, doing more blatant marketing and advertising and more resources online, you know, allowing books to be written and movies like Act of Valor to be made. Uh, and much of that, what people don't realize is has been intentional uh, to lift the veil of secrecy on the SEAL community and uh, help us uh, uh, get out there more and, and get our... Because it uh, wasn't that long ago, Brent, where it seemed like the ethos was more, hey, humble warrior... When we retire, we don't talk about any of the missions. We right. don't. We just disappear. And it seems like in the last, I don't know, plus or minus decade, maybe 15 years or so, all of a sudden we have celebrity seals like yourself and a handful of <laughs> others that have, that have emerged. Well, it's, it's, uh, you're right. And, you know, nine 11 obviously was the catalyst to, to the realization that we needed to change our mindset and culture as an organization. Um, uh, you know, and interestingly, the SEAL ethos, uh, we used to have a, a handful of catchphrases. And the only easy day was yesterday and other types of things like that. Uh, but we didn't have an ethos, you know. <laughs> I ethos love that. Being... <laughs> uh, it's always like, you know, as a guy who's a skier and a surfer, you always love that, man, you should have been here yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, always, of course. <laughs> and the ethos wasn't ironically created until 2005. Uh, because we'd been in this uh, heightened state of transformation and constant deployments and going from peacetime community to a wartime community. And we quickly realized that we didn't have um, any type of documented culture manifesto or core values or vision and mission statements, just like any high-performing organization should and does. And so that was actually created, the catalyst of the ethos that we have today uh, was created a, at a very corporate offsite event. They scheduled a, a three-day offsite for senior leaders on San Clemente Island with the goal of at least creating the foundation of what is now the ethos, which is basically a one-page culture manifesto. And the goal of that was to say, hey, you know what? We've been around for, for decades as an elite organization, but we've never really established on paper who we are as an organization. Uh, what values and guiding principles uh, do we want to build our community around, um, you know, what behavioral norms do we expect of ourselves and others? And how do we use that as a tool for talent acquisition, for training, for decision-making? And, um, and so that was one element of that transformation, uh, to really say, here's who we are as an organization and use that to, uh, you know, develop our talent uh, acquisition strategies around. Uh, but interestingly, and, and things evolve and, you know, we have, 
millennials in the SEAL teams now and younger generations before. I don't even know what's after millennials. It gets more complex. And, um, you know, we've, we've done some surveys. And now that the youngest generations we have in the teams don't connect with the ethos because it's too long and it's too convoluted. They want to go back to the old way of... You know, the, the, don't you have a TikTok video of the ethos? <laughs> exactly. We're going to have, yeah, they want it in 30 second chunks. They're not this one pager that I'm going to have to read. Set to music with some emojis and shit going something. <laughs> I, I guess so. Cause we're going to have to go back to the drawing board to connect with our younger generations in the community. <laughs> How old would the youngest uh, people going into the next buds be? You'll get, it's interesting, um, kind of going back to uh, the students that are more likely to make it, uh, the younger ones right out of high school. Obviously, you can enlist just in the military in general, you can enlist right out of high school. Um, so I could be 18 years old and, and go straight into BUDS? You could. Uh, the wow. younger students have a much uh, lower success rate, though. Uh, we found that they haven't had quite enough uh, life experience. You know, they've been coming right from mom and dad's house, uh, not the same level of um emotional maturity and emotional intelligence that uh, guys who've at least had some college or uh, have worked, you know, in the real world living on their own. Uh, interestingly, 75% of our enlisted SEALs today have uh, at least an undergrad degree, if not some have master's degrees, uh, not including obviously the officers who either come from the Naval Academy or OCS programs, ROTC, that kind of thing. Um, the reason that is, is it's largely strategic. Uh, one, because a lot of guys these days want to finish college or they might want to become officers later. But it's also uh, a mathematical equation because out of a class of 200, there's only going to be so many slots for officers. Half of those go to the Naval Academy and half go to the other ROTC and OCS programs. Uh, so uh, it's kind of a strategic move to enlist first, uh, knowing that you're more likely to get into a BUDS class sooner uh, as opposed to having to wait maybe because that class was filled up already and then you know, when you're waiting, you're out in the other fleet doing stuff you probably don't want to do if your vision is set on being a frogman. <laughs> so people are being strategic about it. And a college education is part of the str strategic chess moves you want to make before you become a SEAL, typically. That's what we've seen evolve over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. It's just uh, just seeing those numbers of how many guys who are enlisted. You know, enlisted used to be, well, you went to high school. That's it, period. You know, they right. Have, guys with college degrees coming in enlisted, that would be, you would only go in as an officer, but in the special operations community and not just in Naval special warfare, but in, you know, army green berets and other, um, uh, in other special operations communities, you're seeing that as a more traditional, uh, move. Uh, and we like that because, you know, we want guys who are a little bit older, who've had more life experience, who are educated. And uh, a lot of them are athletes in college and things like that. But also at the same time, they've taken more intentional time, to train and prepare yeah. themselves. They've given themselves four, five, six years sometimes to train just to make it through buds. Right. Um, I know. I, I can believe that. <laughs> <laughs> and what would be the oldest guys going through uh, trying to be SEALs? What's the outer age range? Technically, to the, start? technically 28 is the age cutoff uh, to go through buds. You know, again, I keep saying buds, but there's, you know, there's a, it's over a year pipeline. Buds is, Basic underwater demolition seal. That's you know what you typically see clips of in movies and documentaries. That's six months long. Then you go on to SQT or SEAL qualification training, which is the advanced portion of the pipeline. You know, back in the day, it was just buds. You just got your ass hammered for six months, didn't really learn much of anything. Then you went to your team and learned everything about being a frogman. Whereas these guys come in and now, and with SQT, they do free fall in SQT. Uh, they do all these different qualifications. So they really are uh, hitting your ground running uh, when they get to a team, uh, as opposed to how it used to be you know, in the pre-9-11 uh, days. Our, our class actually was the, uh, you, didn't e you didn't even used to get your trident uh, upon graduation. You earned, you mm. had to earn that <laughs> in some sort of convoluted subjective board review later on when they felt like giving it to you at the team. Um, sort of like when the sensei walks in and says, you are now a black belt. And you're right. like, well, what? <laughs> oh, okay. what did I do? Well, guess what? My class was the first class to show up at a team with our drivers on our chest. <laughs> can imagine, <laughs> can imagine how well that went over. <laughs> <laughs> now I'd be remiss, Brent, if I didn't ask you about failing, it's another one of my favorite topics. And one of my favorite expressions is you can't be a legend unless you're a loser. And of course, <laughs> you've got, you know, you've got a whole chapter dedicated to it. And of course you quote Churchill and Edison and it's a really, uh, I love what you did here. Can you bring some of this to life for me? 
Sure. I mean, it, it really goes down to the definition of, uh, of true failure. I mean, we all uh, will fail. I call them micro failures. These are the obstacles or the mistakes we make or our businesses that, uh, that, that might fail. But, you know, it's a, there's no destination, you know, in life. It's a continued journey, whether it be in business or your personal life or the goals you're trying to achieve. And, you know, if, if you fail at something and that's the end, then you are a failure. <laughs> but if you fail at something or hit a roadblock, hit an obstacle and uh, take stock of it, learn from it, move on, continue down that path, or possibly sometimes it's appropriate to you know, select a new goal or variation of that goal or target you're trying to achieve, uh, then you're just learning. You know, you're either, you're either winning or you're learning. You know, that's the mindset of um, you know, sort of that high-performance individual or team Whereas, you know, people say, well, you're winning or you're losing, you're winning or you're failing. No, you're either winning or you're learning, adapting, growing, and continuing to move forward. Uh, The other great insight I think you make here uh, that is so powerful is failure does make us feel uh, helpless. And I thought thought a lot about that as I read it. And, And what I thought about, and I wanted to bounce this off you, is when we're moving forward with some kind of an objective, and we feel like we're, we're making some kind of progress. We're, we're, we're moving the ball. That's a very empowering thing. We feel empowered, which is, right. if you will, maybe the opposite of helpless. And then when it doesn't work, for one reason or another, we quote unquote fail. We lost the ability to kind of control our life or to keep our life on the <laughs> path we wanted it on. Some other thing, either we fucked it up or something happened or whatever. And it, it does leave us feeling helpless. Like we're now no longer in control of our life anymore. And that right. that's a defeated feeling. <laughs> yeah, you, you you feel that every minute of every day in Hell Week, for example, in SEAL training. But also, you know, taking Is it, it really, back to- it just feels that way nonstop. You just feel like you're failing the whole time. Well, they, they try to create an environment where you feel like you're failing and the instructors are telling you that you're failing. They'll be whispering in your ear, Gleason, you're the worst student who's ever come through here. You don't belong. You will not make it through this course. You might as so well. So all that cliche stuff we see in the movies is true. <laughs> you're yeah, a piece yeah. of shit, Gleason. Yeah. Calling your mother names and stuff. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we heavily engage in uh, negative reinforcement uh, in SEAL training. Positive reinforcement is not an HR mechanism that we, uh, we utilize. Um, and, but it really, it really goes down to how long we uh, relish in those natural feelings, you know, in in our leadership development programs of my company, you know, we teach motivation theory, we teach resilience, and now we're teaching resilience, uh, you know, and, and working in remote environments and why that's so important. And we all feel when we get, you know, negative feedback at work or, uh, you know, you're running a business and your largest client calls and cancels their contract and it's 30% of your revenue and <laughs> all these things that will inevitably happen. But it's about how long we spend in that moment uh, saying, why me? Why now? You know, why is this happening? You know, and, and that sort of that, uh, that causal, you know, reflection, uh, reflection is good. Uh, but there's a difference between dwelling on the past in that moment and, you know, quickly transitioning to action-oriented execution and utilizing what you've learned in that moment and hopefully falling back to some contingencies that you've well-planned in advance, which, of course, most of the time we don't. (laughs) Then we realize that we should have. It's called free-form jazz at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I I was a jazz drummer in in high school, so I know what you're saying. Um, (laughs) And and, now just make some shit up. Right. Well, there there is an element to that. You know, when it comes to, you know, that, that, I use that as an example because in, 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 in business, uh, as an entrepreneur, you know, sometimes those, those things that happen don't matter to everyone else, but it matters to the founder. It matters to the owner of the business. It matters to the board or the shareholders. Uh, when you do get that call <laughs> that you don't want to get, uh, or the business is being hammered by external factors or, hypothetically speaking, a global pandemic hits and you're applying for PPP loans that you never thought you would even have to worry about. And we've done all of that. (laughs) And quite frankly, it's been interesting to see, uh, I can speak for our team and some of our clients, when you're responsible in the the fact that you can quickly transform uh, a team that oftentimes you'll see almost overnight heightened levels of of resilience. Uh, Our team has been thriving in this environment, not getting sad, not getting depressed, 
Uh, we've been, you know, having to be conservative in, in our comp models. We didn't let any, you know, let anybody go or do any layoffs or anything like that. But, you know, they know that, you know, bonuses aren't going to be what they, what they were going to be. We were set to crush our 2020 goals. Um, you know, those projections obviously have changed just a, just a little bit. Um, but seeing people evolve and thrive in those types of uh, environments is, is quite a fascinating thing. And, um, you know, we're seeing that um, with, with a lot of folks these days. And, and obviously, uh, we're seeing the opposite uh, with many. But um, it's very hard to pin down, uh, if, unless you know people very well, uh, who will uh, stand up in the face of adversity. And like you said, who will <laughs> melt like a snowflake almost immediately, even though they're the people that you thought would react in an opposite manner. And I know one thing for sure, and I, I can't I, I imagine it's incredibly important in your world. Once you know you can count on somebody because you have been through some fire with them, you want to be around them forever and you want them in the fire. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. One of the things we uh, weigh heavily is uh, from a data perspective and SEAL training is peer reviews, just like in the corporate world. And we teach our clients this is doing anonymous 360 reviews. And uh, so that, you know, as leaders or as just team members, uh, our own personal perception of our performance or leadership capability is the worst possible way to really <laughs> identify how good you're doing. What do you mean? My own personal <laughs> PR about how awesome I am is, is not... Yeah. Why not ask everyone else? Because <laughs> they'll let you know. <laughs> and so one of the things we do during BUDS and advanced training are uh, regular peer reviews. Um, in some environments, it's called top five, bottom five. So essentially, we're ranking who we believe the top form performers are in the class and why. And then we're ranking who we believe the bottom five performers are in the class and why. And to your point earlier, the ones landing in the bottom five, it's not because they're not the fastest runner or fastest swimmer or best shooter in the kill house or on the sniper range. It's behavioral. Uh, it's they lack accountability. They lack resilience and discipline, the ability to collaborate and communicate and essentially the ability to put the needs of the person to their left and right beyond their own. So to your point, they're the person you don't want to be standing next to in a gunfight in Ramadi, whereas the other ones, you're going to want to be standing in front of them beside them, behind them, uh, every minute of every chance, because they've proven their ability to be steadfast and to be reliable. Yes. Now I, um, I know I don't want to, I can't take your entire life with, I could easily do a 12 part series with you, <laughs> um, but for it. sure you, you mentioned something, uh, sort of the middle of the book about do something that sucks every day. <laughs> and it sounds like such counterintuitive advice, but I, I, I loved it. It reminded me, I think it was Peter Drucker years ago when I read The mm -hmm. um, Effective Executive. If I remember right, he says, when you're sort of planning out your day, do the shit on your to-do list that you least want to do first. And I was like, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Brent might've been reading some of that Drucker, but there is something about, doing shit that sucks every day, pushing yourself, making yourself uncomfortable. We do change who we are when we do that, don't we? Yeah. And it's it, uh, one of the avenues I take within that chapter. The, the, the phrase I, I borrowed from uh, my friend and teammate, David Goggins, who wrote the foreword. Uh, many of your listeners will know who he is. <laughs> he doesn't have 3 million Instagram followers for nothing. But Another one of you celebrity seals. How many <laughs> oh, yeah. of you guys are there now? There's him. And there's growing. <laughs> there's who i said the number is growing <laughs> the number is growing there's at least half a dozen of you well it, it and we all kind of fall into different categories i mean david's obviously known in the world of you know uh being an elite athlete and an ultra marathon runner and uh and and motivation whereas you know i kind of fall into the category um uh, you know really more around business and leadership and uh organizational transformation but um you know the phrase means you know do something that sucks every day essentially uh, it's being intentional about pushing the boundaries of your comfort zone. I take it a little bit further uh, when thinking about goal setting. Uh, so let's say there's any some particular you know, personal or professional goal that you have. There will always be associated with that goal things that make you uncomfortable, things you don't like doing, things you kind of suck at. Uh, well, that's the, those are the things that you need to intentionally practice on a regular basis so that you can achieve that goal. And so, you know, for example, as a teacher and student of leadership, uh, first and foremost, I have to always be constantly analyzing my ability uh, as a leader. And therefore, I, I can't authentically uh, teach it to large organizations if I am not uh, being intentional in how I practice, not just 
you know, the obvious elements uh, that we might think of as good leadership, but also the things I'm not good at, the things I suck at. Uh, interestingly, on the literal battlefield, I will run to the sound of gunfire and conflict. But for whatever reason, in a in an organizational setting, or or even sometimes at home or in my personal life, I struggle with um, you know conflict resolution or having difficult conversations or conversations that are going to stress me out or you know the angry client who I know has called me three times and I owe him a call and <laughs> it's not going to go well or you know my wife has a conversation she wants to have with me or my kids or all of the above I tend to or have tended to in the past uh, avoid those things at all costs delegate them to others or just push them back on my to-do list as for as opposed to pushing them forward uh, like so, so Mr. Mr. Tough Guy Navy SEAL, when somebody <laughs> wants to have a tough conversation, maybe maybe you can have that over there hey, with so and so. You tackle that one for me. Yeah. So we're we're not perfect, my friend. We're not perfect. Um, but 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 because that has been something and that that was that's been identified in peer reviews that I've done or coaching that I've had. Uh, that's something that I that I struggle with, and my wife reminds me that I struggle with that all the time. She's very good at being my own personal coach, <laughs> as wives have a tendency to be. I, I have one of those too, <laughs> <laughs> and you know she's more of a you know right between the eyes. Do it now. Pick up the phone. Call now. Call the person now. Just get it over with. And when you do that, you know, as we all know, as we go through life and you realize that maybe the conversation wasn't as bad as you thought it was going to be. Uh, the, the conflict was easier to resolve than you thought it was going to be. Uh, the problem wasn't as big a problem uh, as you initially thought it was. And then you dealt with it and you moved on. And you're like, huh, well, I mean, that, that wasn't so bad. I feel a little more confident. And I feel uh, you know, satisfied with myself that I could take that step forward. And then the more you do that and be intentional in that, in that practice, you know, whatever these types of you know, challenges are, the things that suck that you don't like doing, uh, the more you, the more you do, uh, the the stronger you you become. Just like the the bud student who's a college track star, but kind of sucks in the water. Well, when he's training for buds, he's going to be spending more time in the water <laughs> than he is doing. Guess something what you he's get to do? <laughs> amazing. <at. laughs> you know what I'm saying? So. <laughs> uh, all right, Brent. Well, clearly we could go forever. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? No, I mean I think we've uh, you know we've covered a lot. Like I said, I could I could have this conversation all day long, but, um, you know, really, uh, hope that, uh, the new book embrace the suck is a, a, uh, a tool of inspiration, uh, something that people can, uh, you know, use to reflect on, you know, their experiences over the past nine months, but also use it to, uh, develop, uh, new plans and strategies for their personal and professional life and, uh, and continue to move forward, you know, build grit, build mental toughness, and, um, hopefully provide a little bit of entertainment value along the way. <laughs> well, that, the title's if the title doesn't make you smile, <laughs> embrace the suck. Well, I really appreciated reading it. It's a great book. It's a great read. And uh, Brent, I, I I can't thank you enough for coming on. And you're welcome back anytime. I would love to. Uh, it was an honor to be here, and I really appreciate your time today. And look forward to next time. Bless you, brother. Uh, you too, brother. There he is, the legendary Brent Gleason. And if you like that episode, why not share it with uh, 2,000 people that you know right now? Uh, if you appreciate our work, we appreciate you sharing it. Thank you so much. Now, as you might know, I've been an advisor at over 50 venture-backed startups. And one thing I've learned along the way is that in uncertain times, you need to put all over your numbers. And that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. They give you the visibility and control you need to manage every penny with precision and so that you can make the critical decisions you need for your business to survive and thrive. Check out netsuite.com slash different today. And there you can set up your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And uh, one thing that's become incredibly clear, data is an essential service and digital companies and digital government agencies outperform those enterprises who are not leveraging the power of data. That's where my friends at Splunk come in. They are the category queens and kings of data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit Splunk.com slash D2E today. That's S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And uh, my friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out, the number OneLifeFullyLived.org. And I also want to encourage you to pick up a copy of Brent's new book, Embrace the Suck. It's out. It's great. I read it. 
It's fun. It's insightful. It makes a great gift. We um, <laughs> we're produced and edited by my friend Jason DeFilippo, the goat, the greatest of all time in podcast production. Technical awesomeness around here by uh, Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. I also need to remind you that this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Uh, all rights do remain perturbed, and clearly. We get created in a studio that does contain nuts. I don't feel hardy. Hardy? <laughs> I do feel hardy, but I don't feel tardy. I think that's what uh, David Lee Ross said. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Listen to Donnie, uh, listen to Donnie Parson. Yeah, I think Donnie Parson was Dolly Parton's uh, cousin. Listen to Dolly Parton. <laughs> don't forget, Johnny Cash was right. And uh, you know what? Stay legendary out there, folks. It's, it's, it's crazy. I'm, I'm so stoked that you are spending part of this time in your life with me and the rest of us that produce this oddcast for you. Uh, Candy Dandy keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. And until we're together again, follow your different.